Hello and welcome to another election special episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My guest today is James Meadway. We spoke about whether the Conservative manifesto and its limited spending promises will prevent the Tories taking Labour seats in the Midlands, the north of England and Wales. We also spoke about the usefulness of opinion polling, why the Liberal Democrats are once again failing to disrupt the two-party duopoly, and we also discussed the role of the media in the election and whether the UK is becoming a managed democracy. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is One Man's Terrorist, A Political History of the IRA by Daniel Finn. In the book, Daniel Finn gives a gripping account of the conflict and the key figures within the armed movement for a united Ireland. The book demonstrates the ever-present consequences of Irish partition, the violence that followed, and the continued dominance of the divide in Northern Irish life. This is a history of the troubles and the radical politics of republicanism. Visit versobooks.com for more information. James Meadway is a former advisor to the Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell and former chief economist at the New Economics Foundation. His writing has appeared in Tribune magazine, The Guardian, The New Statesman and Navarra Media, amongst other venues. So James, you've recently been arguing that for the Tories to win in their target seats in the so-called Red Wall, parts of the East and West Midlands, Wales and the Northwest, they need to make a really substantial economic offer that would make a clear break with austerity. And instead, we've seen this very policy light manifesto that offers pretty meagre increases in spending. However, just yesterday, we saw the release of the YouGov MRP poll, which shows the Conservatives winning a a sizable majority and crucially shows the Tories winning in just those kinds of constituencies. Is there not perhaps a problem here in that we maybe underestimate the extent to which Brexit is viewed by Labour leave voters as in and of itself a radical programme for social and economic change and that therefore the Tories don't actually have to try and compete with Labour on spending commitments? No, not at all. The, the issue that they're up against is in two parts. The first is that they get a certain distance on Brexit. The second is that they have to actually win an election campaign. They have to win it against a bunch of people who will campaign, who will go out and knock on doors and attempt to persuade people uh, to vote for Labour rather than Conservatives. So what they have to do is something that disrupts that process. So they got a, a built-in uh, number of people who they can get because of Brexit. That, that is just a thing that happens. This is a traditional Conservative vote that is of very long standing right the way the sort of fantasy sometimes get it in London in particular or at least in sort of media bits of London that you know everybody in the whole the north of England the Midlands just votes Labour yeah. uh, and you know you can look at a map and see all the red bits and think gosh that must be true but it just isn't you know there's good I mean I'm from Wigan right there's a good sort of about one fifth maybe a bit more than that sometimes if people there vote conservative my grandma always voted uh, conservative uh, but this is a place that's been labor since you know way back in the midst of time i think since about 1918 there's plenty of places like that there are plenty of conservatives out there what they can do is offer something on top which is get brexit done and some of the rhetoric around that that carries them a certain distance what it doesn't do is disrupts what Labour can campaign on in all of those places, which is precisely that economic offer to actually make a difference. And once people start thinking about, and they are thinking about, we know this because 
This is what they're telling uh, pollsters. This is obvious from what's happening on the doorstep. That once people start thinking about what the country is like, what their own experiences are, uh, what things are going to be like for the next five or ten years in this country, they think about a bigger set of issues and what uh, Boris Johnson's going to do about them. And at that point, Labour's offer is, is, is significantly better. So it's always going to be a fight. But the point at which they have to try and push the thing over the edge, the Tories, in order to actually clinch their victory, in order to disrupt what I think is, is Labour's campaign for the next two weeks, they had to make an offer on the economy and they haven't done. Why do you think that is? Is, is that related to the 2017 campaign and, and the, the kind of red Toryism of, of Theresa May and her, her advisers and, and they view that whole approach as, as a mistake? Well, it's it's partly that the the issue with the red Toryism of Theresa May is that it wasn't it wasn't very red. I mean, there was quite a yeah, lot of yeah. sort of pointing at red things, but there was not very much in the way of actually ending austerity. I mean, this time round, they they have said that they will put enough money into public services, or at least their preferred public services, so they can claim that austerity is kind of ground to a halt at this point. Um, they've not gone beyond that, and they need to go beyond that because after nine years of austerity, everything is looking pretty battered. I mean, that, that's that's the the net result of all this. So one part of it is a sort of misreading of what happened in, in 2017, uh, which is is like the misreading of the 2017 manifesto as, as like going to going too red when in fact it didn't do very much. Um, the other part of it, I think, is a sort of yeah, probably a complacency where they can sit there and think, well, we've got these um, this number of seats in the bag. We have our various uh, campaigning techniques. We reckon we can disrupt Labour, certainly in the air war, as much as possible. Then we can do all of this. And the third one is just they are the Conservative Party. It's not what they want to do. They don't fundamentally really want to see uh, public services funded. They don't want to intrude on what is a by now a very, very peculiar setup for capitalism in Britain, but one that works for at least some people right at the top. So they don't want to intrude on that. So put all that together and you end up with a, a very, from the Conservative point of view, batten down the hatches and hope no one notices sort of manifesto. Do you think it's possible that somebody like uh, Boris Johnson might have actually preferred to junk austerity in, in a more conspicuous way, but he's trying to hold together the Conservative Party and, you know, his Chancellor is a, you know, an Anne Rand fan and that there are these sort of very fierce uh, fiscal Conservatives that he has to take with him? I think, I mean, Boris Johnson, I doubt, ever thinks that far ahead in terms of what he really wants to do in the economy. He has some vague mm. ideas, as far as anyone can tell, about what we ought to do. Um, Dominic Cummings, until he, he resigned three weeks ago, was his, his senior advisor, absolutely couldn't care less about fiscal conservatism. That's perfectly obvious uh, from everything he says on the subject. But they are sitting in the middle of a party which is deeply concerned about fiscal conservatism. It's supposed to represent the best interests of British capitalism. It aspires to do this, uh, despite Brexit. Uh, and therefore, for sort of squats in the middle attempting to do not very much. I mean, had had the kind of direction that had been laid out by the, the sort of Cummings era in Downing Street continued, then I think we would have seen some some significant uh, efforts put in to try and drag some more spending into the NHS, for example. That hasn't really that hasn't really been there. There's been a lot of hand waving. There are sort of gigafactories or at least one gigafactory that's going to be set up with no funding supplied for it. There's some sort of gesticulation towards a large number of new, new nurses, most of which are double counting, that sort of thing. So there's an effort to, to make it look like new things are happening, but no real effort to actually make it uh, like new things are happening. On the other side, I mean, in terms of Labour's spending commitments, 
So I've seen a lot of uh, conservative commentators comparing this year's manifesto unfavorably with the 2017 manifesto. And the argument that they're making is that the, the scale and the number of the spending pledges that Labour is making will just jar too strongly with, with common sense notions of, of what's affordable. And with that, unfortunately, quite resilient idea that the economy is, is like a household and one needs to match one's outgoings and, and, and income. Do you think there's any any danger that Labour's credibility can look a little bit shaky uh, due to the number of commitments? I think in this one, what's happened is is a recognition after two further years of austerity, you need to do something fairly serious to get out of that. So you've got a manifesto that, that builds on 2017, that goes further in 2017 in the sense of offering more public spending and saying we're going to do more about patching up the damage of austerity because we have to by this point. But the argument there is, and it's the one that, that you, you bump into on the doorstep and it's the one that you have to overcome, is that actually we, we do live in a very rich country. We live in the sixth richest country on the planet. The problem is that wealth is in the hands of a few people at the top. It is not spread out everywhere else. Now, that is the argument we fundamentally have to have about changing the direction of society. If you put it in an international context, what Labour's plans amount to is basically moving from a relatively low spending uh, major developed economy, a low government spending major developed economy, right down the bottom end near the US, to something a bit more like you know, Sweden or Germany or some northern European place. It's that kind of level of spending we're talking about. So it's not dramatic in a European sense. It's not dramatic by comparison to other similar economies, but it would be a change in direction for this country. And that, I think, is is a discussion and an argument to have with people, because you are asking for a change in direction. You're not saying, like the Conservatives, that basically everything will carry on as it is, but PS here's mm. Brexit, or actually it doesn't amount to that, because everything carries on as it is, but it all gets faster uh, and worse more rapidly. So that's what the, their manifesto amounts to, not that they want to tell you this much. So it is a change of direction, and that's a discussion to have. And the evidence so far is that where we are having that discussion, where Labour is having that discussion, uh, it is swinging in our favour because after 10 years of this nonsense of austerity or nearly 10 years after four decades of neoliberalism it's perfectly obvious to most people you need a you need to change of direction that's literally what the polling says you ask people do you think there should be a change of direction uh, on the economy 60 percent of people say yes two percent yeah. of people say no I mean, one thing I've, I've been wondering about is the extent to which that because of that 40 years of, of neoliberalism, that people cease to think of, of government as, as something that can improve their lives. And, you know, they're just so used to a, a punitive benefit system. They're used to things deteriorating and, and that it just sort of lowers expectations. Do you think there is a sort of battle to convince people that government can play, uh, a, you know, an, a positive, effective role in their lives? Yes, yes, genuinely. I think so. I think there's a there's deep and significant significant extent to which after all this period of time the, the people's expectations people's horizons about what's possible not just from government but from the economy from society as a whole are are really really battered and reduced to to a very very low level but set against that there are two things one is a recognition of the need that something has to change if you want to vote for a change you can vote for labor and things will change and they'll change a the direction that's better that's one the other is a, a simple defensive argument that we know there are some things in this country that still work and work in a big collective popular basis of which the NHS is the most obvious. If you want to defend the NHS, then you have to vote uh, Labour in this election. It's as simple as that. For all the, the flapping by uh, certain sort of people who really ought to know better, frankly, around what the trade documents say about the discussions between this Conservative government and the US, it's perfectly clear where they want to take the, the NHS. It's perfectly clear what they want to do with Brexit. And if you don't want that to happen, if you want the NHS to continue in the form it's got used to, then you're going to have to vote Labour. So that, I think, is the argument for the next two weeks or so. 
On the NHS, you've described the, the dossier that was that was leaked as a as a real game changer. Obviously, we've seen you know tremendous pushback on that from uh, the Conservatives and and the media. The argument being made is that when people uh, hear about the privatisation of the NHS, what they think about is American healthcare companies taking over hospitals and and, and running them. Um, they don't think so much about increases in 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 the prices of pharmaceuticals that the NHS would have to pay to pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I think that's that's. I mean, they can think about the healthcare companies taking over hospitals if they want. I mean, frankly, there are already private providers of healthcare services at various points inside the NHS. This has been going on for a while and it's accelerated markedly, uh, certainly since about 2012 or so with the Health and Social Care Act. So that is already taking place. I mean, this is what I find extraordinary about this kind of, but the Tories will never, ever want to privatise the NHS. It is already happening, right? There's, there's no use sitting there saying, oh, they wouldn't do it if they're already doing this. And what you have in the documents is, despite some efforts to disguise the nature of discussions and to, to, to hide the intent, what you have is uh, an obvious line of march for this government when it attempts to strike a deal with the US. By the way, there's a, there's a bigger picture here. It's not just that you might think, oh, well, could, could these conservatives uh, who, when they've governed the country before, privatise everything they could possibly get their hands on and have a, an ideological bent towards privatising whatever's left of the state and indeed whose senior members of the government have written articles and chapters in books saying wouldn't it be good to privatise large parts of the state, including the NHS? But if you can put all that to one side and say, well, maybe they don't want to do this. The simple fact is that if Britain leaves the EU on the terms of Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, which is a very hard break uh, with the EU itself, which means uh, a real blow to our major uh, trading partner and, and, and trade associate in, in the world, which means having to look from a position of, of, of some weakness for somewhere else to trade with, your next most obvious place to go to is the US, and then you're in a weak position at that point because you are a relatively small economy versus a very, very large economy, and you don't have very much to offer. We already have significant trade with the US. In fact, we run a trade surplus with the US. There aren't very many gains to be had uh, from, from sort of tweaking the existing setup. There's no big thing sitting there that are nice win-wins. The only obvious places to go to, certainly in terms of actually creating more trade between Britain and the US, is to undermine standards on agricultural, uh, you know, food and agriculture and this sort of thing, but also to crack open the massive protected market of the NHS, and not just in the sense of, oh, now we're going to sell drugs at a, at a massively inflated price here, end what Donald Trump calls price gouging by foreign foreign nations to for US uh, pharmaceutical companies. It's not just that perhaps you get more scope to provide services inside the NHS, but it's also, and this is explicitly in the document, things like getting hold of data that the NHS has, which is hugely valuable, which is why companies who are investing in artificial intelligence are so keen to get hold of that data right now, because it's wildly valuable in terms of future medical research. It's cracking all of that open and handing it over and doing so as rapidly as possible. Simply because if you're Britain outside the EU on the terms that Boris Johnson is trying to uh, get through on his Brexit deal, we will be in a weak position. We will have very, very few choices if you want to strike a trade deal with the US, but to strike one that looks remarkably like the NHS is very much on the table and very much up for grabs. What's your view on the way the media has has covered this? I mean, you know, we had the BBC's Laura Koonsberg querying whether any government would really dare to do something like this. And there seems to be a drive to downplay the implications of the dossier. 
Well, it's of a piece with, with much of what we've seen in reporting since the election campaign kicked off, although that's itself a continuation of what's happened uh, throughout the last four years or so of anything to do with Labour. In terms of, you know, would any government would any government dare do something so unpopular? Yes, they would. They've done it recently. Royal Mail privatisation was basically opposed by everyone. I think it had tops about 20% support. It was done anyway. It was done with a big public subsidy to write off Royal Mail debt to make it, you know, attractive for somebody wanting to buy uh, the various sort of private interest wanting to buy the thing, who all promptly made a handsome profit on it. This was unpopular. It was done. These things happen anyway. The idea that governments just respond to what people happen to think or not is, is not really quite what happens here. And if you have a government determined to make something happen, regardless of uh, what the public might think about it, then they will, they will get on with that. You can see the line of march from this. You can see the line of march from the Health and Social Care Act in 2012. You can see the line of march for a long period of time under Conservative-led governments towards further privatisation. There is no reason at all to think that it's suddenly in a trade deal where they have very, very little offer to offer a much larger, much more powerful would-be trade partner other than things like the NHS, like mostly the NHS, that they won't somehow just offer the NHS. Of course they will. It's, it's at best, it's a ludicrous sort of performative naivety on behalf of some journalists to try and come out with these things. It really doesn't fit any uh, sense of, of how the world works or an idea that you might need to interrogate. You know, people turn up with every you interrogate the evidence, you ask questions about it, and so it's just dismissing it. I mean, there was a spectacular version of that where a whole bunch of people were turning around and saying, oh, well, Labour only just published something that had been on Reddit for a month. Well, why didn't you, as a journalist, go off and publish this thing that had been on Reddit for a month? Then you could have got the scoop rather than, as it turns out, Jeremy Corbyn. Well, they've, they've got videos of Boris Johnson uh, putting jam on scones to cover. Um, I guess in some sense, there's a, there's a degree of, of sense to, to what they're saying. Any sort of uh, deal that is agreed with the Americans, it's unlikely to be that, you know, we wake up the next day and suddenly we're all paying for private health insurance and we, and we have American companies just running the NHS, right? It's going to be more like uh, what we've seen up to now, this sort of gradual salami slicing of, of the NHS rather than immediate full-blown privatisation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the key to it is salami slicing. So you pick off the most obviously profitable bits uh, first. This is why drug pricing comes up. The NHS is a, is a massive um, protected market for drugs. It uses as a monopsony buyer, to use a technical term, it uses as a big single buyer its own market power to influence the prices of drugs. It has a nice National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which uh, sets you know drug standards and drugs prices in this country. And incidentally, is, is, is copied by another 30-odd countries around the world, which is another reason why pharmaceutical com companies are keen to get rid of it or diminish its role. They want to be able to crack other markets, not just Britain. Um, so so that is the, the big obvious one there. I think the other big obvious one, because it's poorly understood, is probably around data and access to data, which is explicitly mentioned a few times uh, in the trade documents. That is a very, very juicy pri uh, prize indeed. The NHS probably has one of the most valuable data repositories anywhere on the planet in terms of its quality and the extent of its coverage and the degree of public trust attached to it. The, the, the key to privatise the NHS, if you want to do it, is, is it's like the Cheshire Cat and a smile. As long as you can stick a label on the front and it still says NHS, as long you can point to something where it's still kind of free for someone, then it's sort of free at the point of use and it's the NHS and everyone loves it. I mean, bear in mind, as a private healthcare provider in the US, you, you sort of don't mind too much if someone's just going to give you a load of money to perform a service. You know, if the British government is daft enough to just hand over insane piles of cash to you to performing a service, you'll settle for that. It's a similar logic to the private finance initiative and the and finance firms in the City of London. If the British government is daft enough just to hand over a load of money to you for kind of 
on a rather sort of hokey basis, uh, writing a loan of sorts to run a hospital or a school, or whatever it might be, for a long period of time for vastly more than it really should cost, then of course you'll do that. You, you kind of, you sort of don't care. You just want the money. And if the government's going to be there handing money out to you, then that's absolutely fine. It, it's an instance of a broader issue of what does a neoliberal state look like? Well, it spends an awful lot of time and effort just shuffling money around. It, it, it mm. sort of removes itself from productive engagement with anything. It sits there and it acts as a not even a service provider, but a, a sort of money taker from one group of people and money giver to another group of people. It acts a bit like what every other company starts doing under neoliberal capitalism, which is you look for revenue streams and you sort of you leech off them. So you mm. can take one flow of money from going from somewhere and you hand it out to someone else. Pension payouts look a bit like this. If you privatise the entire NHS but still provide a notionally free at the point of view service, you could try and make it look something like this as well, as vast expense and no doubt within yep. continual uh, and probably permanent pressure to get rid of whatever's left of that free at the point of use and turn it into market, market uh, provision. So, so that's one model of what privatisation can look like over, over a longer period of time. And you can see it happening already. You can see it happening on, on the supply side, if you like, as private providers are moving into NHS uh, provision in, a, in, a, in an increasing way and you can see it if, if you like in the, in the, on the demand side which is where there are continual efforts to find ways to get people to pay for some NHS service or other so that that is how the package starts to operate altogether. Presumably at some point down the line you, you reach the point where the, the the service has deteriorated to such an extent that popular support starts to decline but, but you feel we're, we're a long way from that. We're a long way from that, although it was happening. I mean, if you know, people remember the 1990s. I dimly remember the 1990s, and it was always kind of like now for the NHS. It was always stories about waiting lists and uh, and endless underfunding, and everything just getting slowly worse and worse and worse. And it's this period of time of underfunding for the NHS, relative underfunding for the NHS, that its support for it starts to diminish, and you can see it. It's underfunding plus you know the first parts of marketization, really, introduction to the internal market, that sort of thing. The combination of this together really starts to undermine support for the NHS. It's with new labour quite determinedly putting more money into the NHS that popularity starts to pick up, that it gets back on its feet and starts to look like a, a kind of viable uh, service that, that people have this support for. I think there's also a kind of halo effect of it, which is that it's one of the few services still provided in roughly the way that people expect it to be provided. Like, you can genuinely still just rock up to an NHS, uh, a GP or a hospital or whatever, and get something for free at the point of use or need because you need it. You know, you don't have to. You're not going to be charged for this at, at that point. Uh, and it, it still sits there, and it's sort of outstanding compared to every single other part of your entire existence, where literally always somebody is going to be there to ask you for money for something. So, so the more it stands out, the more people want to support it as something that's quite different to what everything else is like. Just going back to the the media for a moment so there's been um there's been some discussion by left commentators that the behavior of the broadcast media in particular the bbc during the course of the campaign so far suggests that it's not so far-fetched to see the uk as increasingly resembling a sort of managed democracy that we would associate more with somewhere like russia under uh, yeltsin and then vladimir putin where Formal democracy exists, but it's apparent that the institutions of the state and the media are being marshaled to prop up the ruling party and to radically reduce the likelihood of any opposition victory. What do you make of that kind of uh, view? 
It's it's. I mean, look, it's it's a stretch to to start to say, well, here we are, and here here's here's Vladimir Putin's Russia, or, or you know, even Viktor Orbán's Hungary. Uh, my, my, you know, you, you can draw sort of lots of comparisons a bit closer to home, I suppose. Of, yeah, of I'm probably of, uh, caricaturing. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. I mean, I, I think like I mean people have <laughs> talked about this, but you can see how how democratic. I mean, there's you know, there's sort of serious academic writing on the themes of post-democracy or post-liberal democracy and that sort of thing and what happens when neoliberalism gets to the point where so much of public life is decayed that you're not really left with much in the way of a recognisable functioning liberal democracy anymore. That's the kind of a serious thing that can happen to, to a country. Uh, I feel like we're some distance from that but what, what really all of this has, has alerted everyone to is, is that for all the talk of you know, there's a sort of fantasy on the left um, that, that, you know, you take over government and then all the bad people line up and they're mean and nasty to you. And that, that's where things get that's where things get horrible. Actually, the way the state operates in a developed, large developed capitalist society like the one we're in is that everybody has a bit of a relationship to it. And particularly in civil society, everybody has a bit of a relationship to the state and power and this sort of thing. And the way that the state and power operates, you start to see way before you, you get anywhere near actually being in government. It already starts to function like this. It is already sort of common sense to know that Jeremy Corbyn must be an outsider because he's so wildly uh, different in all of his views and everything from what the common sense of British society is. Now, mm. if you dig into what most people actually think, Jeremy Corbyn's views on most issues are very close to what most people actually think about how the economy should run, about whether Britain should be invading Iraq or getting involved in mad foreign wars the whole time. The, you know, he's very, very close to what most people think in these things. But he's quite a long way distant from what that kind of centre of British society and the state tends to think uh, about it. So, so that's, what, that's what we're kind of running up against here, I think. We're running up against this issue of how power is organised in a modern, developed capitalist society, and it isn't it's a very Gramscian point, but it's quite an obvious one. Uh, it isn't simply, here is coercion, here is something nasty happening to you. It's a much more subtle form of power. So, to the extent that that, um, that, we, that we could say it's a sort of managed democracy, it's, it's not in a necessarily deliberate, conscious manner, but it's a, it's a variety of people, institutions uh, working towards their perceived interests, and it has that outcome. Exactly. I think, that, yeah, that, that's probably a better way of thinking about it, which is that there's nobody sitting there plotting and scheming for, for things that, well, I mean, there are people plotting and scheming, <laughs> but they don't have, they don't have that much yeah. impact in the world, right? There's lots and lots of people running around doing their own thing. It's just that lots of their own thing happens to work in the same direction. I mean, you know, Ralph Miliband wrote about this sort of thing uh, long enough ago. The state in capitalist society is to a large extent a description of the state as interlocking, interlocking circles of, of interests, that people share common interests, and that's how the state ends up running. Well, you kind of see some of that. You know, you can see how this starts to play itself out, and it's not—it's not coercive. It's not some plot. It's just that everybody happens to end up in the same place, thinking roughly the same things by some happy coincidence. So, so that's how power operates. That's 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 kind of what we're, we're dealing with here. I mean, some of it is also just the failure of institutions. Like, the, there's, there's a there's there's a very deep economic failure that's been there for a long period of time. You can see that as soon as you get out of really the centres of most of the large cities, you don't have to travel very far to see really graphic economic failure. You know, you go to any high street in any small town in the country, that's what it looks like. And you can see the desperation, you can see the fact that this is an economy that isn't working, not just for a few people, but for most people, and hasn't been working for a long period of time. And if you can't secure that, every other institution you have has to work much, much harder. And if they can't work much, much harder, suddenly your whole society starts to look quite unstable. 
So we're, we're looking at a general crisis of legitimacy. And as you said, that means that institutions like the media have to do more heavy lifting than they would ordinarily do, and, and perhaps more than they would like to do, because they are very attached to their self-perception as, as, as neutral arbiters. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and instead, what you get is a media that's probably doing less heavy lifting, all told. Right? There is probably less scrutiny uh, taking place of what the government's done for quite some period of time than, than we've been used to, I think. Just going back to Jeremy Corbyn and, and the popularity of his policies. So would you be inclined to attribute his low approval ratings primarily to the, to the media and, and, and the, the smear campaigns that we see and so on? Well, it's, it's always, I mean, the problem is that sort of thing. It's always a bit easy to sit there and go, uh, if you're on the left and go, oh dear, the media don't like it. Well, you know, we kind of knew that, you know, and we always know that. It's just stating the obvious to say the media, the media in general, particularly the print media, is not very uh, favourable to a kind of Jeremy Corbyn style of socialism or a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party. That's just obvious. So it's sort of priced in. So in terms of Jeremy's perceived unpopularity or whatever, I think, yes, it has had an impact. Of course it's had an impact, four years of these things. Uh, and that started to, started to accumulate. I think it's. I think the Labour Party has got now to a position on Brexit which can make sense to people and does make sense to people. And I think you're starting to see the results of that uh, in the polling. I think it's taken a while to communicate this, and I think it's taken a while to to get to the point where that is there. And you know what we're saying, which is basically this is a mess. We're going to have to go back to the people to sort it out because there is no other plausible route out of this one. Uh, it, it does make sense to people, and it does give you the capacity to talk about a few other things. But you know, I'm always a bit wary about complaining too much about the media because like, what do you expect? I mean, yeah, we know that it's like this. We know it's going to be like this. So what are you going to do? you just got to grit your teeth and get on with it. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.